You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's bestseller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil and Body Butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the best seller's body care set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. According to Charles Godfrey Leland, as a child in Philadelphia, he had a Dutch nurse who was reputed to be a sorceress. One day, she carried him up into the attic of their home and performed a ceremony over him, placing a plate of salt with money and a lit candle by his head and laying a Bible, a key, and a knife on his little chest. Her ritual was meant to ensure that he would succeed in life as a scholar and as a wizard. The truth of this episode is impossible to determine, but indeed, Leland grew up to attend Princeton, study linguistics, and write numerous books about the traditional poetry and folklore of the Algonquian people and the Romani, or as he called them, gypsies. Certainly, the story of his early dedication to wizardry complements the eventual direction of his interests, which tended toward the occult. He spent a great deal of time traveling around Europe, especially Tuscany, and produced a volume in 1891 called Gypsy Sorcery and Fortune-Telling. One of his principal sources was a woman named Madalena an Italian fortune-teller whom Leland called his, quote, witch informant, end quote. From her, he received a manuscript written in her own hand that purported to lay out the doctrines of an ancient religion in Italy, what Leland believed to be the tenets of Italian witchcraft going back to antiquity. In prose poetry, which Leland translated and expanded upon, Aradia, the Gospel of the Witches, as he called it, revealed that those persecuted as witches by the church in early modern times were in fact a cult to the goddess of the moon, Diana. Theirs was a religion of the oppressed or the outcast, revenging themselves upon the feudal lords who did them wrong and holding naked orgies in worship of Diana which rites were mistaken by the church as gatherings to worship the devil. The book had Judeo-Christian parallels, for in it, it was said Diana and her brother Luciferus, the god of the sun, had a daughter named Aradia, whom they sent to earth to be the leader of the witches. Leland's book proved to be relatively obscure, 
But after the spread of Margaret Murray's witch cult hypothesis, it was rediscovered by some and raised as proof of Murray's thesis. The problem is, scholars like Ronald Hutton have cast doubt on its authenticity. It is fundamentally different from medieval texts derived from ancient Latin works, Hutton argues, and appears to be of 19th century origin. As it was said to have been written in Madalena's own hand, some have suggested that Leland's witch informant had hoaxed him, while others have suggested that Leland himself authored the work, making it a literary fraud. Whatever the case, there is certainly no evidence beyond the book of the organized religion it describes. This is historical blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and it's time I revealed that I've been inducted into an ancient religion. If there's no evidence for this religion's existence, that's just because it was a secret religion. But don't you worry, I've written out all its rules and teachings so that now you too may join. Thank you for listening to A Rediscovery of Witches, Part 2, The Moon Goddess and the Cunning Folk. Before we move on in the episode, I want to take the time to thank several new patrons on Patreon. James, Charlie, Dale, Kyle, and Jane. And thanks to Karen and Sendra for pledging at a higher tier. Thanks so much for your support, all of you. If any new listeners want to pledge on Patreon, you'll get ad-free episodes and a whole back catalog of exclusive content like the recent blind spot episode I released about the Pendle Witches, which illustrates a lot of the ideas I'll be discussing in this episode. And I still plan to release the complete interview with Sarah Handley Cousins, whom you'll hear more from this episode as well. As I indicated in my last episode, I will likely be letting patron billing happen again on November 1st, as my family currently could use the extra support. The good news is, though, that I plan to push through my usual year-end hiatus with episodes in November, or at least to take a shorter hiatus, maybe only missing one episode before the Christmas special. We'll see how things go. In the meantime, anyone who wants to help me and my family out during this financial crisis can donate at historicalblindness.com donate or at paypal.me slash Nathan Levi Lloyd. Others who want to support the show can do it by visiting my custom Audible URL at audibletrial.com slash historicalblindness, where you can sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible, and I'll get a little payout from them in the process. I really do appreciate any support. On with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. In the last episode, I gave background on the evolution of the concept of witchcraft and the development of the early modern witch hunts in Europe, and then I focused on myths and misconceptions about witches propagated by two academics, Montague Summers and Margaret Murray, in the late 20th century. If you haven't listened to part one, The Hammer and the Horned God, go and catch it before continuing with this episode. Murray, of course, wasn't working in a vacuum when she formulated her witch cult theory. 
As I noted, she was influenced most notably by the comparative religion work of James Fraser. But she also wasn't the first to suggest the idea that the witches of early modern persecutions in Europe were actually pagan cultists. However, Leland's book doesn't appear to have been an influence on Murray. Its claims were very different. It made no assertions that the Italian witchcraft it described was a pan-European religion, and nowhere was the horned god of Murray worshipped. In her earlier work, Murray did acknowledge Diana as a goddess the witches worshipped, but she suggested that it was really Janus, the Roman god of passages, rather than Diana, the Roman goddess of the hunt. She, of course, had in mind the medieval canon law called Canon Episcopi, which described the existence of, quote, some unconstrained women perverted by Satan, seduced by illusions and phantasms of demons, who believe and openly profess that, in the dead of night, they ride upon certain beasts with the pagan goddess Diana, with a countless horde of women, and in the silence of the dead of the night, to fly over vast tracts of country, and to obey her commands as their mistress, and to be summoned to her service on other nights." End quote. This canon law was claimed to be from the 4th century CE, but many scholars believe it to have been a medieval forgery dating to the 10th century. This was the law that had encouraged more lenient treatment of witches as people with erroneous beliefs who had been misled to believe that their dreams of night flights with Diana were real, a view reversed by the time of Pope Innocent VIII's bull declaring them to be real devil worshippers. But even if it only dated to the 900s, where did this idea of women worshipping Diana come from? And was this the same Diana described in Leland's Aradia? It seems that what the canon Episcopi was describing was a certain strain of folklore. And as usual, when delving into the development of folklore, it is a story of syncretism or the merging of beliefs. For instance, the Roman goddess Diana was not the goddess of the moon, but of the hunt, with perhaps some association with the sky or daylight, if one can judge by the etymology of her name. However, through identification with the Greek goddess of the hunt, Artemis, she inherited associations with Selene, the goddess of the moon, and Hecate, the queen of the dead. Hecate's rides with the unquiet dead, which became all mixed up with northern European folklore about the wild hunt, may be the basis for the idea of night rides with Diana and may also be the point of intersection between these goddess traditions and folklore about fairies, creatures whom Diana leads in her rides, much as Hecate leads a host of the dead, or Odin leads a host of fairies from the underworld in his wild hunt. In order to account for the strange creatures described in witchcraft trials as demons, Margaret Murray came up with an unusual explanation that again shows how she leapt to absurd and unsupported extremes in reaching for some interpretation that could make the witch narratives both real and rationally explainable. She suggested that fairies, styled as demons by witch hunters, 
were really a now extinct race of diminutive people like pygmies. But lacking substantive support for such a theory, I think we can just look at it quizzically for a moment before moving on. Another strange bit of syncretism in this folklore derives from the Old Testament. Some versions of the Wild Hunt folklore motif associated it with Herod the Great's hunt for the Holy Innocents, who might become the prophesied king of the Jews. And strangely, Diana appears to be strongly syncretized with Herodias, wife of Herod the Great's youngest son, Herod Antipas, who convinced her daughter Salome to ask King Herod for John the Baptist's head on a platter as reward for a particularly alluring dance she'd performed. According to the legend, once the deed was done, Salome was remorseful, and a powerful wind blew from the murdered saint's mouth, blowing her into the sky where she was doomed to fly forever. Salome seems to have become identified with her mother so that it was said Herodias was the legendary flying dancer and some used Herodias's name, or some derivative of it, like Aradia, as being synonymous with the pagan goddess Diana. As usual, when I delve into folklore, I come out with my head spinning. What can we take from all this? Despite a through line of folklore that might help us identify the myth of Diana associated with witchcraft, there remains no evidence of a widespread religion devoted to her worship. What may be more likely is that, as folklore, these myths were passed as oral traditions, and the medieval church first misunderstood these tales to be real experiences that their tellers believed they were having, and later that the stories were indeed real. And even if women of the age occasionally got together and acted out the legends of Diana, slash Herodias, it would not have been an organized revival of pagan religion, but rather a reenactment of a popular folktale. These notions would, however, be involved in just such a revival, but centuries after the early modern witch purges. In 1951, the Witchcraft Act of 1735 was finally repealed in Great Britain, replaced by Parliament with the Fraudulent Mediums Act. And almost immediately, a man named Gerald Gardner began to give interviews with the press claiming that he was a practicing witch, carrying on an age-old tradition of witchcraft. Gardner was a colonialist, having made his fortune operating rubber and tea plantations on the Malay Peninsula. After retiring to England in 1936, he took the interest he had developed in Malay tribal magical practices and applied it to the field of folklore, writing a number of monographs. Once there was no longer a law against such claims, he let it be known that there existed a coven of witches in the New Forest District of Hampshire who had initiated him into their old religion. He named a certain local woman, Dorothy Clutterbuck, as the leader of the coven, and his favorite story about her coven was that they had engaged in magical battle against Hitler, gathering numerous covens to New Forest for what was called, quote, 
Operation Cone of Power, end quote. This was an ancient and powerful spell which had previously been directed against Napoleon, and before that against the Spanish Armada. The witches danced nude in the cold night with such abandon in casting this spell that some of them died of exposure or exhaustion. This coven's rites involved much in the way of naked dancing, as well as circle rituals and feasting, much of it for the purpose of promoting fertility and to achieve trance states that brought them closer to their gods. As Gardner described this religion in his book, Witchcraft Today, a few years later, they worshipped two gods in a duotheistic system. One was the goddess of the moon described by Charles Godfrey Leland while the other was the horned god described by Margaret Murray. Gerald Gardner, he loves Margaret Murray's work. It fits exactly in with his worldview. That's Sarah Handley Cousins, joining me again to talk about witchcraft. While Murray had envisioned her witch cult as a patriarchal system led by male priests, despite her feminism. Because Murray herself was a feminist. And I think that there is a way that you can read her work as very feminist. But you're absolutely right. She's she's also created a practice that is literally centered on men, which is Sabbaths where men were in the center. Gardner described a more feministic secret witch cult. And it is Gardner's work in bringing this ancient witch's religion to light that serves as the foundation for the modern religion of Wicca and neo-pagan beliefs generally. But how much truth was there to what Gardner taught? First, consider the source of Gardner's knowledge. Scholarly historians such as Ronald Hutton have investigated Gardner's claims extensively and concluded that they seem very unlikely. The woman he claimed inducted him, Dorothy Clutterbuck, appears to have been a pious Christian and conservative Tory pillar of the community, which would indicate that she lived quite a double life if true. Only one other person has been recorded as claiming to have known about the coven and its operation against Hitler, but he told of it after Gardner himself had, and may have just been repeating the story as he had heard it. There were reports that Aleister Crowley, when Gardner met him, confirmed the existence of the new forest coven, which would seem a strange thing to need confirmed if Gardner had been initiated as he claimed. But Crowley's diaries and other accounts of their meeting don't mention this. What they do show is that Gardner came to him and exaggerated his academic credentials and Masonic clout, hoping to get Crowley to initiate him into the magical secret society Ordo Templi Orientis, with no such luck, as Crowley doesn't appear to have thought much of him. What seems likeliest is that he was searching for some occult initiation to make his retirement more interesting. First in the Folklore Society, then in a Rosicrucian theater he joined, and afterward in Crowley's Order, or other mystical societies, like the Order of the Golden Dawn, or the Ancient Druid Order, both of which he dabbled in. And when he failed, he simply created his own brand of magical order. He made up a supposedly ancient witchcraft religion, perhaps as a prank suggesting a stodgy old woman he knew of, who had since passed away, 
had inducted him into her coven's mysteries. By mashing up the work of Leland and Murray, he produced doctrines, and for rituals, he cherry-picked whatever suited his fancy from those two sources, including nudity and sexual cavorting, and adding some that seemed to be more of his own practices, such as flagellation to produce ecstasies or hallucinations. Certainly, as the religion developed, it became clear that the writings he claimed were ancient were actually, at least in part, written by him. For when a high priestess he had initiated into his feministic religion later tried to take the reins, he conveniently produced a new discovery of supposedly ancient rules that clarified the power he as a man should have over the women in his coven making it more of a patriarchy after all. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't begrudge neo-pagans or Wiccans the conviction of their beliefs or the freedom to express them by whatever observance they wish, as the Wiccan tenet goes, and it harm none, do what thou wilt. But I cannot pretend that the historical basis for the faith is any more valid than, say, that of Mormonism or of Scientology another religion fabricated by an acquaintance of Aleister Crowley. Now for a brief intermission. As podcast listeners, you probably already know that Audible is a fantastic repository of original podcasts and tons of audiobooks. Fans of audio drama and storytelling podcasts will find lots of great original programming on Audible as well as a massive library of professionally produced audiobooks narrated so well that they'll feel like audio drama. Maybe you feel like you don't read as much as you used to or as much as you should. Listening to audiobooks is a great way to fall in love with reading again. If you want a real visceral scare during this pandemic Halloween, check out their audiobook of Stephen King's The Stand. But be warned, its descriptions of a worldwide superflu wiping out humanity may leave you especially unsettled these days. In order to directly support this show and me and my family, go to www.audibletrial.com slash historicalblindness to get your free 30-day trial of Audible and pick up a free audiobook. For every one of my listeners who signs up for a free trial at that custom URL, Audible sends me a bit of money, so you really are helping me out by doing it. Sign up, enjoy an audiobook or original podcast, cancel it if you aren't into it, or keep it. They have a variety of membership plans to serve both avid and occasional readers. Once more, that's audibletrial.com slash historical blindness and I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks for your support. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, You'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. 
Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now, back to the show. We have more than one myth born out of Margaret Murray's discredited work. First, her own myth of a pan-European pagan fertility cult mistaken for Satanists by their persecutors. And then, Gerald Gardner's derivative neo-pagan religion of Wicca, claiming to be a continuation of an ancient religion that had been practiced in secret into modern times. Next came the myth that most women accused of being witches were practicing midwives, whose knowledge of medicine was feared and misunderstood as magic. But this myth did not originate from Murray. Here, once again, is Sarah Handley Cousins, whose recent episode of Dig, a history podcast, goes far more in-depth into this myth. It doesn't necessarily um, originate with her. She's not the first person to write about it. Actually, the connection between midwifery and witchcraft goes all the way back to the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of Witches by Springer and Kramer. In the Malleus, there's really sharp descriptions of midwives as being the perfect witch. They are present when babies are born and they they take the babies and they offer them directly to Satan, right? They, they deliver them and they hand them right over. Um, or at least they sort of pledge them to Satan. And so there's always been, I think, at least tracing it back in the in the scholarship and the writing about witchcraft, a, a, a connection, a loose connection between midwives and witches. In terms of the scholarship on it, in terms of like what historians have written and argued, a lot of it does go back directly to Murray. I think that there are a couple of other historians that have statements in their work, but they're very brief when it comes to midwifery. And it's almost always, at least in, in what I found, it's almost always um, cited to the malleus, right? It's it's pointed back, not at sort of independent research that they have done on like the reality of, of midwifery and witchcraft, but instead them sort of saying, of course, midwives were always accused of witchcraft because that's what the malleus maleficarum says. Murray makes just a handful of statements about midwifery. But as you mentioned before, when she says something, she says it with conviction. She never makes statements that are like, perhaps 
midwives were often considered witches. Or she does not say things like that. She doesn't qualify anything. She just makes these very clear statements. So one of my favorite ones, she says, this is in The God of the Witches. Throughout the country, the witch or the wise woman, the sage found was always called in at childbirth. Many of these women were highly skilled. And it is on record that some could perform the cesarean operation with complete success for both the mother and child. So, you know, that's a very <laughs> complete success, right? They were always called in, just not qualifying at all. She says that the witches of the coven were always the healers in the village, that the number of midwives who practiced witchcraft points to this fact that they had this kind of special uh, abilities when it came to issues of reproduction and fertility. And so because Murray is so pointed in the things that she writes about midwives, even though she doesn't write about it extensively, it becomes sort of a definitive source. And so it's it provides sort of the scholarly foundation for people after that to then point to in claims that midwives were often accused of witchcraft. And when later scholars... Uh, were writing, you know, their histories of witchcraft and didn't do their own sort of legwork when it came to the connection of midwifery and witchcraft. They just kind of pointed to Murray because Murray, they assumed, had done that. And I think that the connection seems so natural to people that people just took it for granted. It didn't seem necessary to do the historical research to establish that connection because that connection just seemed so clear. And so it becomes sort of embedded in the literature, the historical scholarship. But then, as I talked about in the episode, it becomes embedded in the public consciousness in the 1970s. In an effort to address the sexual politics and history of the marginalization of women in medicine, sociologists and social critics Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English latched on to Murray's claims about midwifery's connection to witchcraft allegations in their pamphlet, Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, A History of Women Healers. And they're trying to make an argument that women were pushed out of the healthcare field because they are involved in the women's health movement as part of second wave feminism. And they look back on this history of, of the midwives being punished as witches, and they say, see... They've always been pushing us out of this field. They've always been punishing us for trying to take back our own reproductive health care. And it fits so perfectly. You know, when they look to the scholarship to, to write this pamphlet, not only do they see evidence of this relationship, but they also see a woman scholar in the 1920s and 30s writing about this. And that is really powerful for them. The connection seemed so obvious and it fit so beautifully into what Aaron Reich and English were trying to argue about women's health care, you know, the state of women's health care and women in medicine in the 70s that, you know, they saw no need to go digging through trial transcripts and statistics and things like that in early modern Germany. They weren't historians and they didn't see themselves as doing the work of historians necessarily. They were writing something they saw as being for people in the movement to read and educate themselves. They, they weren't trying to write something that they thought was going to overturn a historical perspective, right? They weren't, they didn't think of themselves as engaging in historiography. I totally understand why they perpetuated this myth. And from there, it spread. 
the pamphlet sort of makes a big splash, it just becomes embedded. And it remains that way until the early 1990s when a medical historian named David Harley writes a article in which he just really eviscerates all of this and and points out that there is no basis for the idea that midwives were witches in in the sources. In his article, Harley revealed that it was actually relatively uncommon for midwives to be accused of witchcraft, as they were usually considered trustworthy women. Midwives were often prominent members of society. They were trusted. Even physicians, when it came to birth work, often deferred to midwives because you know, women's health was seen as kind of outside of the purview of a male physician. It, it does not stay that way, right? We know that the midwives were pushed out of medical practice and, and men took over in the form of obstetrics and gynecology. But at this, at this time, midwives were the authorities over this aspect of medicine. While it may be a myth that midwives were common targets of witchcraft accusations, what about female healers generally? Historians have revealed to us the presence in early modern Europe of a class of folk healers whose folk medicine essentially was spellcraft. And there has long been a view, both popular and scholarly, that it was these wise men and women, or cunning folk, who were most commonly persecuted as witches. The problem is that this too appears to be a misconception propagated by 1970s scholarship that has since been challenged, specifically a 1979 article called Who Were the Witches? by Richard Horsley in the Journal of Interdisciplinary History. In the history of medicine, there's sort of a spectrum of medical practitioners and there's, you know, there's the physicians, there's the barber surgeons, there's the apothecaries, there's the midwives, and they're all sort of understood as part of the, the spectrum of medical work. And then, of course, there's folk healers and the cunning folk, and they're sort of understood as different. In some cases, women who identified or were identified by others as sort of cunning folk um, or white witches could occasionally preside over a birth, but they would not be understood as a midwife. A midwife was something else. To clarify, cunning folk were practitioners of operative magic, meaning they performed services such as creating charms to cure people and livestock, or acted as diviners for hire, telling the fortunes of those who paid them. Theirs was an especially practical magic, sought out in rural areas as a remedy to misfortunes that were believed to have been caused by evil magic or curses, counteracting black magic with white magic, as it were. I have given an apt example of cunning folk being accused of witchcraft in the famous case of the Pendle Witches covered in my recent patron-exclusive Blind Spot episode. And the same thing with the story that Avril tells in, in her episode, um, which was about one particular witch trial case in England where it was a woman and her two daughters and they were understood to be, you know, folk healers, cunning folk essentially, right? And a noble family went to them looking for help for their two sons that were very, very sick and they didn't get better. 
And so the women ended up being blamed rather than being, you know, seen as giving them the medical intervention that they needed and and saving the day because the boys didn't get better. They were blamed. Because of prominent cases like these and the simple logic behind the proposition that it was practitioners of magic who were being accused of witchcraft, like the midwife witch myth, the notion is easy to believe. I myself am guilty of having repeated the claim on previous episodes of this podcast. The problem is that the evidence doesn't allow for so grand a generalization. First of all, as we see in the Pendle Witches trial, much of the folk magic performed by cunning folk was widely considered a good magic and involved explicitly Catholic ritual elements. In fact, in his 1994 article in Social History, Witch Doctors, Soothsayers, and Priests on Cunning Folk in European Historiography and Tradition, Willem de Blaycourt points out that there were even Catholic clergymen who dabbled in folk magic as well. The Cunning Folk certainly were not part of a pagan cult holding meetings. Historical records show they were almost invariably solitary figures practicing extremely individualized rituals. Some may have been engaging in cursing those who had wronged them, as we see among the Pendle Witches, but those who were accused of evil magic or maleficium may have just been dealing with dissatisfied customers. If one hired a good witch to heal a family member or some livestock, and instead of being healed, their condition worsened, one might presume the charm they had worked was actually a curse. But the most problematic aspect of the cunning folk as witches claim is that it ignores the majority of the accused, who don't appear to have engaged in the selling of magical services at all. So let us look at what was behind the accusations against those who were not admitted practitioners of folk magic. First, there were those who were assumed to have been practicing maleficium because they had given someone an odd look or even a harsh word. And afterward, by coincidence, some misfortune had befallen the person they'd looked at or dealt with unpleasantly. As we saw in the recent patron exclusive was the case with Allison Device, the first of the accused Pendle witches. Among these, being socially isolated made the accusation harder to refute. For if no one knew you well, imaginations could run wild about what you believed and what you did with your time. I'm an Americanist by trade. I actually studied the 19th century, the 19th century America. In American history, certainly the Salem witch trials are the ones that everyone typically thinks of. There's one um, sort of interpretation that looks at it very much as a way of almost community policing in a really intimate way, right? These communities in New England were very, very small and they were very isolated and they were very close knit because they had to be, right? And so some historians have looked at it as a way of not so much necessarily believing that somebody actually had committed these crimes or maybe at least the the people in positions of authority who are acting out the the trials and the punishments and that sort of thing maybe didn't believe it but believed that these were individuals who had violated community norms and who were perhaps dangerous in that sense that they were subverting the power of the puritan church or they were 
undermining the authority of certain Puritan leaders or, you know, a, a bunch of other things. One of the big theories is these were people that lived on the outskirts of the town and they were not as interconnected with the community. That interpretation sort of looks at it less as the people taking those claims very literally and instead seeing it as kind of a way to to control and to punish people that they understood as falling outside of the norms of society. And of course, witchcraft allegations as a mechanism for revenge played a role in many cases as well. For when one saw that the charge of witchcraft brought someone, even an innocent, to ruin and death, what better way to destroy an enemy? As for the confessions of the accused, as alluded to before, we know enough now about coercion and the effects of torture to easily explain these. We know that accused witches were tortured physically. They were sometimes physically tortured with torture devices. Um, and they were sometimes tortured in terms of being denied food and water, being denied sleep, being kept in really horrible conditions. And so these were people who were in profound distress. And historians seem to sort of agree that in, in most cases or many cases, the testimony that they then gave was deeply influenced by the situation that they were in, right? That they were saying things that they thought their accusers wanted to hear in some cases in order to stop the pain of the torture or they were not in their right mind because of sleep deprivation or malnutrition or thirst or something like that. Um, in not so much in the episode that I wrote, but the episode that my colleague Avril wrote, um, she got into sort of the real nuts and bolts research that some modern witchcraft scholars have done on the differences between testimony that was taken under physical torture and the testimony that was taken from women who had been denied sleep. And there are really profound differences between them. The, the women who were being tortured physically, you get confessions that are almost like short staccato, sort of like, yes, I did this. This is the person that was here. These are the things that we did. It's very to the point because they're trying, they're, they're desperate for it to stop. Whereas women who were um, denied sleep, you get these kind of wild, dreamlike, long, meandering confessions because their brains are addled. Their brains are like shutting down. Nor can we discount the mere threat of torture as a driving factor behind the confessions. The details may clearly have been fed to the accused by their torturers, or they may have been gleaned from common knowledge of what witches were being accused of. The witch craze happened to coincide with a revolution in publishing that resulted in the spread of cheap publications detailing witch trials, featuring woodcuts that depicted what witches were supposedly up to, so that even the illiterate acquired a working knowledge of the claims. Right, and so when they, when a woman gave a confession, they often would say something that, yes, it would line up with what some, some other woman had said in her confession, but that's, as you said, because it was in the culture, right? So they knew how witches behaved. They knew the things that they were accused of. Many accused witches hoped that by confessing to their accusers and saying they repented, the inquisitors and magistrates would have mercy on them which certainly worked for some of them. 
and others, as mentioned earlier, may have simply been describing folk stories about Diana and her night rides in such a way that witch hunters may have taken it for an admission of first-hand experience when it was only an oral tradition. The question remaining, then, is what drove the witch hunters themselves. Typically, they are depicted as zealots, unable to see past the tips of their noses, which they'd buried in the Bible. Certainly, it is hard to refute that this was the case, but in recent times, a more nuanced view of their motivations has emerged. The papal bull of Pope Innocent VIII that is seen as the beginning of the early modern witch craze, explicitly accuses witches of having, quote, blasted the produce of the earth, the grapes of the vines, the fruits of the trees, end quote. This has led some historians to suggest that the real impetus behind the witch craze was climate change, specifically the Little Ice Age that cooled Europe starting as early as 1250, causing many crops to fail. As the human mind is hardwired to find someone to blame for things that are outside our control, a scapegoat was sought, and witches fit the bill. Another theory has it that the worst of the witch purges occurred in places where civil authority was relatively weak, and the execution of outsiders as witches served as a show of strength to consolidate power and enforce social conformity. But recently, in 2018, two economists, Peter Leeson and Jacob Russ, put forward a different theory based on statistical analysis. They claim that the evidence supports the idea that the early modern witch craze was triggered by the Protestant Reformation. By their view, the Catholic and Protestant churches engaged in witch purges as a kind of advertisement for their respective brands of religion, each demonstrating through their witch trials their power over the devil, as well as their willingness to use violence against those who rejected their faith. This may seem like conspiratorial thinking, but this could be true even without an organized conspiracy to knowingly make false accusations against and put to death innocents. Economic forces may be at work without conscious knowledge of them, and furthermore, these economic motivators may have been working in combination with the people's desire to scapegoat for failed crops and weak governments needing to enforce their authority. As I have shown time and time again, it is more the domain of conspiracist thinking to oversimplify very complicated episodes in history in order to create a tidy explanation, at which one can point an accusatory finger. Wherein lies the reality? Likely in some combination of all these scenarios. It was a method of social control, but people really did believe in Satan, and they really believed that Satan could have a, an effect on our lives, right? And that these women who were social outcasts might also be doing these nefarious sort of occult things. 
we are having a, a rash of bad luck. The fields, the crops aren't coming in well and people are hungry. And all of a sudden one year, my apple trees didn't, they didn't produce any apples. And, you know, there's that one woman in your village and she made a weird face at you once while you were in the in the tavern or something like that. And it becomes an explanation for something. People are desperate to try to make sense of the world that they live in. And it seems a lot easier to blame one person, particularly if that person is already marginalized, if they're already failing to fit into the norms of society. And it's a lot easier to do that than to say like, you know, random things happen and sometimes it, it sucks. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Big thanks goes out again to Sarah Handley Cousins of Dig, a history podcast. Check out her show. I'll put a link in the show notes. A special thanks go out to my partner patrons, Joe, Jacob, Robert, Diane, Marina, Emily, and Devlin. Just name the spell you'd like me to cast in exchange for your patronage. Clearly, I am a cunning man, for I conjure the past. And the title podcaster even has the word caster right there in it. Some music on this episode was provided by Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel and from Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. Be sure to visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness and pledge to get ad-free episodes and exclusive content. Or support the show by signing up for a free 30-day trial of Audible at audibletrial.com slash historicalblindness. On the website historicalblindness.com, you can find the blog posts with transcripts of the episodes and bibliographies for further reading. And you can make a one-time donation there to support this podcast or at paypal.me slash Lloyd the first letter of each name capitalized. Follow the show on social media and give it a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, to keep my rating high. Until next time, remember, just because something seems plausible, sounds true, or makes for an apt explanation, doesn't make it accurate. <laughs>